The following message is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. Welcome again, uh, everyone. So this is a session on preparing yourself to preach. It is not a session on preparing a sermon. That's a whole different uh, subject, or at least a related subject. But this is about preparing yourself. It's about the person uh, who brings the message um, and the preparation of yourself for uh, that high uh, calling and that uh, great responsibility. Now, uh, there are some substantial notes, I think about five pages uh, altogether, um, that I'm grateful to the team for making available. And I wanted to do that for this reason, that primarily what I'm going to do in this session is to give you some quotations uh, from folks who have shaped my thinking um, uh, and uh, have had influence uh, in my life over many, uh, many years. Uh, I, you know, if someone has said something better than I could ever say it, <laughs> why would I make a second-rate attempt to communicate what has been said better by others as opposed to simply share with you what came with power and with impact uh, in uh, my own life and in my own soul. Uh, you'll see at the end of the notes just a list of some recommended reading, which I commend uh, to you. Um, I, I've been greatly helped by what might be called the classical tradition in regards to preaching and uh, pastoral ministry. I'm quoting from uh, folks from past centuries. Uh, you know, one of the great things about um, the writings of believers in past centuries is that when they're dead, they cannot disappoint you. <laughs> I'm serious that uh, there is some special value um, in, in reading those who have finished the course and have finished the course well. And uh, one of the advantages that I find, too, of reading from earlier centuries is that sometimes where there are things where people have got a distorted perspective, because we're further away, it's very, very easy to spot it, whereas it's sometimes harder to spot it when we're um, uh, trying to uh, discern in regards to writings of our own contemporaries. So I hope that this will be helpful to you as it has been helpful uh, to me. And... Uh, that uh, the Lord in his kindness will help us in our own preparation of ourselves. Most of you will be familiar with uh, Phillips Brooks' uh, classic uh, statement on preaching, uh, defining the two elements that preaching is the bringing of truth through personality. In other words, there is the preaching, there is what is said, and there is the preacher, there is the one who says it, there is the message, and there is the messenger. Both are of great importance, and our focus today is on the messenger. Preparing your sermon is hard. Preparing yourself harder. Remember that Jesus said about John the Baptist that he was a burning and shining light. Now, that is a statement about the man himself, and it's of great importance. Lloyd-Jones says in his marvelous book, Preaching Preachers, the preacher's first and most important task is to prepare himself, not his sermon. 
And uh, there's a quote there from James Stocker. Um, uh, There were a series of Yale lectures, and this is from 1891, where James Stocker was the one giving these uh, lectures. And this has been very striking to me. He says this, the effect of a sermon depends, first of all, on what is said, and next on how it is said, but hardly less on who says it. We are so constituted, he explains, that when we, what, what we hear depends very much for its effect on how we are disposed towards the one who speaks. The regular hearers of a minister gradually form in their minds, almost unawares, an image of what he is, into which they put everything that they themselves remember about him and everything which they have heard of his record— And when he rises on Sunday in the pulpit, it is not the man visible there at the moment that they listen to, but the image which stands behind him and determines the precise weight and effect of every sentence which he utters. Wow! (laughs) But you know that what he's saying is absolutely true, that people hear what we say through a filter of what they see in regards to how they experience us. And Phillips Brooks makes the point, I think, very helpfully that the the preparation of a preacher for his task then has two sides. It involves the opening of the life both toward the truth of God on the one hand and towards the needs of the people that we are called to serve on the other. And this, brothers, is the sheer beauty of our calling to pastoral ministry. So let me tell you about two pastors, and you can pick which one will be your model. They're both fine gospel people uh, now with the Lord. First is Graham Scroggy. Dr. Graham Scroggy was the pastor in the 1920s of Charlotte Chapel, the church where Alistair at one time was the assistant pastor, and at a later time, I also briefly had the privilege of serving there. Uh, A marvelous church in Edinburgh in Scotland. And Dr. Scroggie, when he uh, came and was in the process of interview about being a pastor or being the pastor at uh, Charlotte Chapel, Uh, He already had a very fine reputation in terms of his writing ministry, in terms of his preaching on conference platforms and so forth. He was a distinguished scholar uh, as well as a wonderful uh, expositor of the Word of God. And one of the elders at Charlotte Chapel told me this story, that when when Scroggy had come, he had apparently said— to the elders in the interview, and I think this might have been a little unwise way of putting it, he said, brothers, you can have my feet or you can have my head. Now, that might be a dangerous thing to say, (laughs) but you know what he meant. Um, I have this capacity of being able to, to generate what is taught, and I have a limited amount of time and therefore, I, I am not going to be able to be engaged in much pastoral work if I give myself to this ministry that, uh, that I have. You can have my head, but 
uh, you have to choose. Do you want my head or do you want my feet? And of course they said, we'll have your head, Dr. Scroggy. And, uh, uh, and so it was. Now that's one model of pastoral ministry. Let me give you another. Dr. Warren Wearsby. Um, after his long career serving in Moody Church and, and then his marvelous work with uh, Back to the Bible, um, he was asked at one point late in his life by a church, I believe somewhere in Michigan, could he come and simply fill the pulpit? And the elders thought that they were making a, a good sale to him by saying, now look, you're not of any funerals, you're not of any pastoral responsibility, you won't have any meetings. We just want you to come and to, and to fill the pulpit. And, and Wearsby said, no, 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 I can't do that. And the elders, of course, are confused. And uh, what do you mean? You've been doing this all your life. No, no, no. You don't understand what preaching is. Preaching is bringing the Word of God to a particular group of people. And I cannot do that if I do not have some engagement in relation to the people that I serve. Now, there's absolutely no question in my mind that Wearsby is a far better model for us than uh, Scroggy. And, and this is what um, Phillips Brooks is saying, that to prepare yourself to minister the Word of God into the lives of the people that you serve involves an opening of your life on both sides uh, to God and to His truth on the one side and to your people and their needs and the realities of their lives uh, on the other side. Um, uh, Pastor Ted Alston, who was my predecessor, but one at the church that I serve and is still in the church and is still uh, looked to as a marvelous example and model by all of us who are younger than him. He has this marvelous phrase, irrigate your soul in the joys and sorrows of your people. And you will find that the opening of your life to the needs and challenges and encouragements and blessings of your people will feed into uh, the ministry uh, that uh, God has given uh, to you. Uh, Phillips Brooks goes uh, on uh, to uh, speak uh, of the way in which we are to apprehend all their intensity, the wants and the woes of men, to see the problems and the dangers of life, and then to know um, all through us that nothing but Christ and his redemption can thoroughly uh, satisfy the wants of the soul. That is what makes a man a preacher. Um, to have seen the needs of the lives of people and to have been immersed in the Word of God and then to have bring the two together week by week. What a privilege, brothers, it is to be in pastoral ministry. Now, with that introduction, I want simply to point out then seven qualities that shape effective preachers. What is it that we want to cultivate as we uh, seek to prepare ourselves to preach, as we open ourselves to the Word of God on the one hand and to the needs of our people uh, on the other? And here are seven qualities. There, uh, in the classical literature, there are varying lists uh, most of these appear in most of these lists, and they have seemed to me to be the most important. I'll begin in each with quoting Scripture and then give you some quotes um, from those who have gone before. First, then, earnestness. Uh, 
Or if you want some synonyms, urgency, liveliness, intensity, seriousness. Acts 20 and verse 31, for three years I did not cease, Paul says, day, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Or Philippians 3:18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's an earnestness, a passion in that. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, what a word that is, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, earnestness. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Um, William Mackenzie, uh, who runs Christian Focus Publications, who have one of the stands here, marvelous work of Christian publishing over many years, told me a story about when he, William, was in his early life and met with Professor John Murray, uh, whose name uh, most of you uh, will know, uh, not least for his marvelous commentary on the book uh, of Romans. Um, and Professor John Murray asked William, what is the difference between preaching and lecturing? And Murray said, I'll give you a clue, it's three Ps. So my friend William says, well, um, three Ps, okay. Um, prayer? No, 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 you've always got to pray. <laughs> um, preparation? No, 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 you've always got to prepare. Three Ps. What is the difference between preaching and lecturing? Preaching is a personal, passionate plea. That is right out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, there is something of the Word of God that has so gripped your own soul that it comes to you with a sense of earnestness, a sense of urgency. One Saturday afternoon, Robert Murray McShane, one of my great uh, spiritual heroes, um, was on his way to visit a person who was dying. And someone in the church said, how have you got the time to do that when you're, you're just about to be called on to, to preach? And, and this is what McShane said, I always like to look over the brink before I preach. You see, he was reminding himself of the reality of eternity. Here's someone who's going to be there in probably a few hours or a few days. And I'm going to speak to an assembled crowd of people. And at some point in the not-too-distant future, every one of them are going to be there. Um, from Murphy's pastoral theology, speaking of what happens in preaching, I love this, Christ is now to be offered and accepted or rejected. How critical the moment. The heart is now to be reached and made soft by divine grace, or it will grow harder. How tender we should be. What a thing it is to preach and to open the Word of God. What a privilege. Again, from Murphy's Pastoral Theology, 
In preaching, the heart should be enlisted, the whole heart, the heart inflamed by a sense of the importance of the subject. It must spring from a sympathy with God and souls, which has been produced by the Holy Ghost. And in every sermon, the first care of the preacher should be to get his heart inflamed with it. Your own heart has to be inflamed with it. He should pray and read the word and meditate until it is reached. It is the fundamental preparation for faithful and successful preaching. Seeking God in the place of prayer with an open Bible until your own heart beats with a sense of the urgency of that which God is showing you in the Scriptures. It must be, says Blakey, the expression of thoughts and feelings that are alive within him, not dropping out helplessly like water from a leak, but streaming forth with the freshness and energy of a fountain. Um, I wonder if some of you might have heard of David Garrick, who uh, lived from 1717 to 1779. He was a classical and well-known actor. Um, There uh, were theaters named after him around the world. Uh, Many of them have been renamed in more recent years, but there was a Garrick Theater uh, in Chicago and certainly, of course, uh, in London. And on one occasion, David Garrick, this famous actor, uh, was asked by a pastor about why it was that he seemed to be able to hold people spellbound in his acting, and that when some ministers got up to speak, people fell asleep. And this is what David Garrick replied, quote, Because you treat realities as if they were fictions, and I treat fictions as if they were realities. Wow. Earnestness. Second, tenderness. The Apostle Paul's statement, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. Isn't that the most beautiful picture? But there's a wonderful picture of the ministry of the Word, that what you do using this analogy is to nourish yourself so that others may be nourished by that which has become a part of you. Murphy asks the question, why did God appoint men rather than angels to be his ambassadors in the world? And he says, was it not because they could feel for those who were sinners like themselves as no other creatures could? Because they could speak from experience when they pressed home God's gracious offers. Because they could interest them as those who had the same wants and longings because of that deep sympathy which binds them in a common brotherhood. Surely that is a large part of why Peter becomes the humble servant and shepherd who's able to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the first and second letters of Peter. He's been humbled with a sense of his own need, and out of his own receiving of grace comes this ministry of grace that then extends to others. Again, Murphy, we should feel for them in our inmost souls and let that feeling influence every tone and every word that we utter. And quoting someone by the name of Payson, he says, I was never fit 
to say a word to a sinner except when I had a broken heart myself, when I was subdued and melted into tenderness and felt as though I had just received pardon to my own soul and when my heart was full of tenderness and pity. It's when we feel most deeply our own sinfulness that we are able to speak more, most powerfully and clearly into the consciences uh, of others. So earnestness, tenderness. Third, sympathy. Here, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse uh, 15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Again, Murphy, we should strive to get into sympathy with the feelings, the wants, the trials, the temptations, the aspirations, the doubts, the fears, the hopes, the joys by which they, that is, those you are speaking to, are affected. And this, of course, is the great privilege of pastoral ministry, that you do actually engage in these things. You gain some sense of them. I don't know about you, brothers, but I, I, I find often, when I'm studying some passage of Scripture, I find that I gain insight by looking at it not only through my own eyes, but looking at it through the eyes of someone I've just visited who's in some great need. Now, what does this say to them as well as what does it say to me? It's a wonderful thing. Again, William Blakey, the most persuasive preacher, other things being equal, is the preacher who has the most correct apprehension of the circumstances of his hearers and the largest consideration for them. It is when true sympathy is in operation that you are most free to denounce sin and condemn error. It's a very important principle. And then number four, peace. And here is one that you will often find, as I do, that you need to seek the Lord in a special way, especially in troubled times. Lord, will you grant a particular peace to my soul as I minister your word this coming Sunday? Um, Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15. Thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Now, I've given to you what I think is a remarkable quote from classic English literature from Charlotte Bronte in her book, Jane Eyre. And uh, I found this in an early edition of William Garden Blakey's marvelous book for the work of the Christian ministry. You'll see that in the note there where I give you the reference. For some reason, he dropped it in later editions. And uh, uh, maybe he just didn't want at that time to be quoting a secular author. I have no idea. But I think that the quote that he gives here is quite remarkable. Um, Jane Eyre, the character of Jane, is quite often a reflection of Charlotte Bronte's own experience. And in this classic English novel, Bronte describes 
through the person of Jane Eyre, going to church and hearing a gifted young preacher. And this is the description. The heart was thrilled, and the mind was astonished by the power of the preacher. But neither was softened. Throughout, there was a strange bitterness, an absence of consolatory gentleness. When he had done, instead of feeling better, calmer, more enlightened by his discourse, I experienced an inexpressible sadness. For it seemed to me that the eloquence to which I had been listening had sprung from a heart where lay turbid depths of disappointment, where moved troubling impulses of insatiate yearnings and disquieting aspirations. Oh, to be able to write like that. <laughs> but look at how she ends. I was sure the preacher, pure-minded, conscientious, zealous as he was, had not yet found that peace of God that passeth all understanding. He had no more found it, I thought, than I. You experienced that? To listen, perhaps, to very passionate preaching that seems somehow to come from a spirit in which something is clearly just not. He had no longer, no more found the peace of God that passeth understanding than had I. You know, people can tell when a man talks about faith without exercising faith. When a man talks about humility without having humility. When a man talks about patience and grace where there's little evidence of it in his own life. There's a battle for this, brothers. I, I fight it, and, and you will fight it too. Peace comes from a quiet confidence that God will accomplish his purpose through his word. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of your peace, of your peace. Beware of becoming a frustrated preacher. Your people will know it. And then as we're thinking about preparing yourself to preach, the fifth quality that... Um, uh, I want to suggest we seek to cultivate is, of course, joy. Romans 10 and verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We are commissioned to declare the greatest good news that this world has ever heard. It is the most marvelous privilege. Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Uh, the apostle repeatedly 
refers to God's people as being a joy to him. And they created plenty of challenges for him, but he speaks about them as a joy. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus uh, at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Again, Phillips Brooks. It is essential to the preacher's success that he should thoroughly enjoy his work. I mean in the actual doing of it and not only in its idea. No man to whom the details of his task are repulsive can do his task well constantly, however full he may be of its spirit. He may make one bold dash at it, but he cannot work on it year after year and day after day. And then later he adds, the more thoroughly you enjoy it, the better you will do it. I find it very important, because we all face the demands of ministry that sometimes get us down, I find it very important to regularly remind myself that it is an immense privilege to be a minister of the gospel. An immense privilege to be a minister of the gospel. Then number six, love. We're talking about preparing yourself if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You almost feel like you, you, know, you want to get the percussion section out and just do a little demonstration here of just overwhelming us with constant, unrelenting, clashing noise. And what happens as the reverberation just builds and builds and builds is eventually we're all saying, please stop, please stop, can't stand anymore. That's the point I think that Paul is making here. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here's a statement from James Denny in his uh, commentary on First Thessalonians that has been life-shaping for me. The power of truth, as far as its ministers are concerned— depends on its being spoken in love. Unless the heart of the preacher is pledged to those to whom he speaks, he cannot expect but to labor in vain. Lloyd-Jones quotes a man by the name of Richard Cecil, very powerful statement, to love to preach is one thing, to love those to whom we preach is another. Um, again from Blakey. The preacher is one who has to win souls, and there is no way of winning without love. Self-evidently true. The preacher is the representative of the great Father whose great power for winning men back to himself is love. Hosea 11 and verse 4, I drew them with bands of love. And then one more here from D.L. Moody. And again, Blakey uh, has this quote. Moody said, I have never felt that I could get hold of an audience unless I had previously filled my heart with thoughts of their internal condition and felt compassion and a yearning for their welfare working in my soul. Um, so Moody's preparing himself to preach actually involved a profound sense. 
in the place of prayer, of asking God to nourish a particular affection of those to whom he would speak. And I want just to add this that I hope might be encouraging for someone here today, that the renewing of your love for your people is actually key to persevering in ministry. I, I, I noticed this uh, some time ago in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4, that the apostle makes a connection between faith and love on the one hand and perseverance on the other. So he says that uh, you are growing in faith and you are increasing in love, and therefore we boast about your perseverance among all of the churches. So the therefore is important. The, the perseverance in some way is related to confidence in what God will do among this people and genuine love for them. And I, I'd spotted this just in my, my reading of Scripture some time ago, and there's a reason why I emphasize some time ago, because this is a story that needs a history to, to make its point. But around that time, I had breakfast with a senior lay leader in our church who for a long time had had a very useful ministry in leadership of one of our classes. He'd done it for many, many years, and we had breakfast, and he said, Colin, I think it's time that I moved on to do something else. I think it's time that I packed this in and so forth and so on. I, I just listened to him over breakfast, and it became clear as I, I listened to him that there were some things about these folks, not happy about this and that and the other, that had begun to irritate him, and it had got under his skin. And I thought about this principle in Second Thessalonians in chapter 1. I said, well, you know, before you, before you do that, let's try this. Would you commit for the next two weeks to really ask of the Lord that he would renew your love for this group of people? Because just listening to you, I, I think that you've experienced some frustrations, and that's often part of leadership. And he agreed that, that he'd do that. And we met for, for breakfast two weeks later. And you know the rest of the story. He said, I, I, no, I need to carry on. Um, God has renewed an affection for this people. I see that what was happening to me actually was just that I'd become irritated. But he really has renewed my love for these people, and I want to carry on. And the reason I tell you a story from a long time ago is that it led to many, many future years of sustained persevering service. The renewal of love for the people God has entrusted to you is a wonderful, wonderful gift, and it's absolutely tied to persevering in ministry. And the last, humility. Following from what we were looking at earlier in the story of Peter uh, this afternoon, Acts chapter 2 and verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. James Denny, who I've quoted before, says this, no man can bear witness to Christ and to himself at the same time. No man can give the impression that he himself is clever 
and that Christ is mighty to save. You have to choose between these two, and there's no question as to which you want to communicate. It is impossible at the same time to seek to communicate what a great preacher you are and at the same time to communicate that Jesus Christ is a great and a mighty Savior. And for sheer strength of language on this point, I think no one could go further than Charles Bridges in his book, The Christian Ministry, where he says this, the most pernicious and debasing evil of all is the converting of our sacred office into a medium for setting forth our own excellence. And then look at what he says next, prostituting the glories of the cross for the indulgence of our own pride, drawing a veil over the glories of our adorable master and committing a robbery against him, even in the professed business to exalt him. Well, we all know how dangerous that reality can be. Says John Watson, great writer on pastoral ministry, the chief effect of every sermon should be to unveil Christ and the chief art of the preacher to conceal himself. So in summary then, brothers, I must seek so to prepare myself that when I come to preach, I come earnest and tender and sympathetic and at peace, joyful, filled with love for God and the people for whom, to whom I am privileged to speak, and humble. In other words, the effect of your preaching ministry is going to in large measure be an overflow of the quality of your own spiritual life. And I think, though I can never quite trace the uh, quotation, but you will know it well because it's repeated so often, I think that's why Robert Murray McShane said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Well, let me pray, and then uh, we can have some questions, Andrew, from there. Father, what a privilege you have given to us that we should stand before others and open your word. We want to prepare what we say to the best of our ability, but we want to be prepared so that we who say it may not get in the way of that which you have entrusted us to speak. Grant, Father, that we may walk with you closely. Grant that we may cultivate in our own walk with you the right spirit of humility towards you, the right spirit of tenderness, sympathy, compassion towards your people. Would you renew within our hearts a profound sense of love for Christ and love for our people? Would you give to us a sense of what it means to handle eternal things and to speak, as it were, on the brink of eternity? And so grant, Father, that your Spirit may anoint our ministries 
for these things we ask. In the wonderful name of the Savior we serve and proclaim. Amen. 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 Andrew? Okay, we will now begin our Q&A. Jacob and Charles, can you hold your microphones up? Uh, If you have questions, please come to us um, and speak into the microphone. We have about 15 minutes. Can I ask a question about uh, the message uh, before this session? So you talked about restoration, and maybe this is too expansive. Um, Is there a framework for restoration for people that have gone farther than Peter in the sense that um, sexual sin, financial sin, things like that, we know God restores, God forgives. Is there a path back? In ministry? Yes. um, You will find, as you know, brother, uh, very different approaches to that within uh, different uh, groupings. And um, what is the good news is that there is always a path back to usefulness. And it may not be back to the same sphere of usefulness, but there is always a path back to usefulness. And uh, that is the grace of God, and it's the wonderful good news that we should share with people in all kinds of dire pastoral situations by means of encouragement. Yeah. Thank you. Um, your first point on earnestness. Uh, when I was wondering if you had wisdom in regards to, um, I've read some authors who are very much like, uh, you know, your own zeal and earnestness, that fervency of spirit. It, they make it as though it's entirely you, and if you don't have it, it's entirely your fault. Um, and at the same time, though, I, I think that the Lord is sovereign, and he sometimes blesses us in a way that is, is wonderful and, and special. And... Um, I've had moments where I'm, I'm seeking that uh, fervency and zeal, but where I feel like it's a little bit long in coming. So can you, uh, and I know there's a lot that's kind of goes into it, but do you have any wisdom for thinking about that? Th- thank you for asking the question. It's a really, really important one. And it gives me the opportunity to say, um, when talking about earnestness, we're not talking about a style. We, we will speak in different styles. Some people will speak with an intensity of passion. Some people will speak much more slowly and much more gently. And earnestness can be conveyed every bit as much in the one uh, as the other. Um, So not to mimic a style that um, one might think of as conveying earnestness, but to seek to have in your own heart a sense that what... I have been trusted to say today really matters. Um, some of us will have listened to tapes of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on, on many occasions, and I, I've benefited greatly from that. And one of the things that's um, quite striking and sometimes even a little bit humorous about listening to him over a period of time is that you keep hearing him say when he comes to a particular subject, now this 
is the most important thing. <laughs> and, you know, then he's on another subject a few weeks later. This is the central thing and so forth. And you think, why does he keep saying that? Because he's absolutely persuaded in his own mind and heart, having immersed himself in the Word of God for the week, that this is absolutely the Word of God for us today, and that we must grasp it, and that it's vital, and there's a sense of intensity that has come with that. And I think, yeah, that, that uh, woe betide that I should ever stand in a pulpit uh, with something with, with, with a sense that this doesn't really matter too much. It's not possible to preach like that. Thank you. It's a really helpful question. Could you speak to the tension between study and being with the people? It seems like either I'm drug one way or drug the other yes. way. Some practical tips on finding a balance between the two. Yes. Well, just to say that um, both are vital to preparation. And uh, I think that that's really important. Um, I've found in life in general as a pastor that if you think of I, I have to preach, I have to pastor, I have to lead, there are three roles um, that are trusted to me as a pastor. If I spent about a third of my time in each of these, I'd probably be doing quite well. Um, and that actually has been a useful kind of a guide for me. It does vary. And uh, there are certainly times when we all ask the Lord to help us in a special way because there have been unique circumstances that have pressed us in our preparation that week. I the Lord knows the difference between the time when I didn't apply myself and the time when I really did apply myself and I really needed some extra help. And, and uh, we all know, I'm sure, uh, the experience of the Lord giving some unusual help when we're stressed. But that, that grid, um, which... Uh, um, I, I owe to Derek Prime, uh, Alistair's mentor and, and, and mine. Uh, he often spoke about a third, a third, a third, and I found that to be profoundly helpful. And always to remember that pastoral ministry is not somehow taking away from my preparation to preach. It's actually contributing to it uh, in a very, very profound way, directly or indirectly. Yeah. Thank you. It, um, the quote at the beginning that you cited was uh, preaching is the bringing of truth for, through personality. Yes. And then your closing quote says that the preacher ought to try to conceal himself. Yes. And I sense yes. that there's a tension there between, between how our personality comes out and, and in a healthy way and an unhealthy way. Can you comment on that? Yes, I, that, that, that's a helpful question. I, and um, uh, Brooks is not talking about a display of personality. He's simply saying that it comes through a person. And it comes through you, and you are as God made you. Um, the quote at the end uh, is to say that while it is true that uh, preaching comes through people and God has uh, ordained it to be so, the role of the people to whom this privilege is given is absolutely not to make a display of ourselves. Uh, whatever the particular personality may be. So um, uh, I, I hope that's helpful. Um, uh, isn't it an amazing thing that God should trust the greatest good news in the world to people like us? An amazing thing, it really is. Thank you. I was wondering if you would speak some to the um, 
more on the relationship between the pastor and his people. I know that you and Alex both famously have long careers at just a couple churches. Can you talk a little bit about how that relationship with your previous church before moving, you know, what, what, what was, what went behind your decision to, to move or to be called to a different church? Um, for some of us who are students and are dealing with, um, congregations calling us and talking to us, you know, how, how do we gauge that preparation part of the ministry? Yes. Thank you. Well, um, I don't have much experience to share because I only made one move in my life. <laughs> it was a fairly big move from the church that we uh, that I pastored in in London. We, uh, I was there for 16 years, and I've now been 27 years uh, at the Orchard uh, in the northwest suburbs of, of Chicago. Um, uh, one uh, major factor uh, in discerning the move apart from the fact that we were being asked to come, was that in God's mercy, we also felt free to go. I had an assistant at the time who became my successor, and there was a path for the church in London that um, uh, was a very promising path, and uh, that meant a great deal to me. And my assistant, Johnny Prime, Derek Prime's son, served uh, in that church for 20 years uh, after I moved here, and uh, when he moved on to serve with the denomination, the Free Church in the UK, his assistant became his successor. So it's been a remarkable thing uh, for one church to be uh, served by just three pastors in such a, a very, very long period uh, of time. Uh, it is a wonderful thing if God grants the opportunity to serve a congregation over a prolonged period of time. Not everyone has that gift or opportunity, and there's not a particular principle, but it's sure a marvelous blessing. Um, and if in God's kindness you have the opportunity of finding people with whom there is a fit and they are drawn to your ministry and you are drawn to them as people— then cultivate the flame of that love for, in every way that you can. And as long as it burns brightly, it will be the most marvelous blessing to continue to serve that group of people. I don't know what else I can say in regards to that. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, mine's possibly got two parts to it. Did you ever get the privilege of listening to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? I did on just a couple of occasions. I was listening to him in a series on preachers and preaching on the way here, and at one point he was talking about the preacher needs to preach with his whole body, he says. Yes, yes. Do you know what he meant by that? Or how, oh, it's hard for me to think about He had a particular earnestness about him. That, uh, that the fists were clenched, and, and uh, uh, the, the way in which he pronounced words, uh, there, there was an an energy that was in uh, his uh, uh, his whole body when uh, when he spoke. He never moved around, though, as as I recall it. Uh, he was uh, fairly uh, fixed to the spot. But uh, again, we we mustn't become enslaved to imitating a style. Um, what we're looking for is that there's an authentic earnestness that has come out of our own 
the engagement with the Word of God that somehow has made this heart beat a little bit faster because you've seen something that you've applied to yourself and you can see how it relates to God's people and that you now have the privilege to bring it. So this is clearly an all-of-life kind of thing that you're describing, Uh, but I'm just curious that if there's anything that you do on a weekly basis, Saturday night, Sunday morning, where you're really trying to get into the mindsets and the hearts of your people, uh, just anything from like a practical perspective on a sort of weekly basis. Yeah, um, your your question is well framed because the answer to the latter part, I I don't have anything particularly to to say to that. Um, uh, What I'm trying to describe is the cultivation of a way of life and of patterns of prayer and of practice that um, when cultivated over a period of time contribute to what we are seeking to become uh, as the servants of God. And, and that's, that's a lifetime journey, and it's, um, uh, it, it, it's not easily confined to, I, I, I do these three things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, regarding your points on uh, sympathy and tenderness towards the flock and the sheep, um, and being in tune with their needs and their trials and if they're going through something, which you say it's best, let's say, you know there's a specific family in the church who's going through a specific trial and you know exactly what it is and preparing the sermon for that Sunday to address that specific need or would that make them feel like maybe they're kind of being singled out? Um, I, I, I often, I think of this by way of background. Um, if you're regularly engaged in some kind of pastoral ministry in which you're weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, you're going to find that in the very way that you read Scripture, you see it not only through your eyes, but you see something through their eyes as well. And they're not the only ones. For every person that you've directly had an encounter with in a particular circumstance, there are going to be actually a number of other people who have different variations of uh, the same kind of experience or different experience, but that puts them in the same place. And therefore, if you, if, if you come at the preparation of what you're saying from that perspective, you are helped to speak in a way that addresses needs that are around the congregation because you've touched them and you've felt them yourself, and that is of irreplaceable value. It's like there's that beautiful picture in the Old Testament, you know, of the, uh, the high priest going into the presence of God with the, the stones on the ephod, and he's actually bearing the names of the tribes of Israel as he goes into the presence of God. He's sort of representing them before the Lord. And that image I've found to be profoundly helpful, that uh, I'm seeking the face of God with an open Bible, with the names of God's people and the needs of God's people over the heart. And uh, I, I, I am seeking something first for myself, because as it goes through, through me, has to go through me, but I'm seeking something from the Lord for them, and therefore my knowledge of them is uh, significant in regards to the application of the Word of God. Yeah. It seems like I've heard more and more from my people, uh, where I pastor, um, input about different learning styles. 
you know, and even giving different f- learning styles, learning styles, and giving you. feedback when it comes to preaching, you know, and have even been asked, you know, do you consider the different learning styles that are perhaps in the church or the congregation as you prepare to preach? So would you have any feedback and input for that? Is preaching something that's totally different? Do we take that into account in any way? Yes, I, I don't think I've got a lot that's useful uh, to say to that, except never to let your confidence in the plain speaking of the Word of God clearly explained. Never allow that confidence to be undermined. Uh, God has used this throughout the history of the church, and he'll continue to use it until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Um, so I do need to think about those to whom I'm speaking. Am I saying this clearly? Are they understanding it? You know, um, uh, am I speaking in a way that's over their heads? I, I don't want to use clever language. I, I want to speak as clearly, plainly, directly uh, as I possibly can. But uh, don't ever let uh, folks undermine your confidence in the clear proclamation of the Word of God to be the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit meets the deepest needs of the soul of any person. Yeah, yeah. This, this will be the, the last question. Okay. I was wondering if you had any uh, advice on holding, uh, in preparing ourselves to preach, in holding truth and tenderness together. Uh, just in my own experience, I find, you know, people tend to either want, you know, like, all truth or all tenderness, like, you know, I love how you blast them with the truth, or I just love that you make me feel great about myself, and you're like, oh, no, on both fronts, you know, and just any, uh, and I've noticed it recently in myself, I've been preaching for about eight years in a church plant in Cleveland, and I even notice, begin to notice myself, sometimes I don't like to, I don't want to press into attention where I need to push people, so just any advice on how we, how do we help prepare ourselves to give the truth with tenderness? Yeah. Um, The one thought that I have on that, brother, is that I found it immensely helpful uh, to try and make sure that I've had the experience of saying something to a person directly in a personal way, one-to-one, pastorally, um, before saying it publicly. Uh, Because if you sit with another person and you open a point of truth that's very difficult for them, relates to a deep battle perhaps that they have, and you speak the truth looking them in the whites of the eyes, but you're speaking it in the context of a relationship in which they are speaking with you, you're a pastor, and here you're speaking about this. Uh, I have found that that is immensely helpful because it tenderizes the heart with which I will then speak the same truth publicly, and that's very important. Um, not to be, as it were, hiding on the platform, which is possible to do by saying things publicly that one has never actually had the uh, experience of saying directly to a real person privately. So again, if there's one thing that comes out of this session to to, to hold and to take uh, take home, it is that pastoral ministry and preaching are— are not to be thought of as in competition. And it's easy to get this idea as a pastor. I need to get all this time to prepare, and I haven't really got time for the needs of the people. And actually, God has melded these two things together 
to walk with the people of God and to open the Word of God. The two are melded together, and in God's grace, the melding of the two together will be something that will tenderize your own heart and help you to speak clearly the Word of God in a way that has the kinds of marks that we've been pointing to from the Scriptures uh, today. Thank you. Good question. You've been listening to a message from Truth For Life. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.